Welcome to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast channel with me, Kevin Paul. Today we feature one of our legacy episodes with award-winning producer and engineer, Catherine Marks. Catherine talks to me about her early beginnings and what it's like to work with Alan Mulder and Flood and how she encourages the artists that she works with to perform at their highest level. Catherine, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. Let's start at the beginning. How did you start working here? I'd be interested to know what Flood said, but I started in 2005, just down the hall, and essentially assisting his assistant, Andy Savers. But yes, I met Flood in 2001, and and then finally after I'd finished my degree in architecture in Australia, he gave me the opportunity to come and, and try working for him over here. Why were you, if you were an architect or training to be an architect, what made you want to come into the studio? I think I had played the piano growing up and I'd always loved music and writing music and uh, I, I had wanted somehow a career in music but I didn't know what kind of career and at school they don't exactly encourage that unless you're going no. to be a classical pianist or oh, a performer right. or after having met Flood in 2001 he's he had suggested that I kind of go when I go back went back to Australia I I should join bands and write music for other people to kind of explore what area it was that I wanted I was interested in basically yeah, sure. because yeah. I didn't know what it meant to be a producer I didn't know what it meant to work in a studio and there were just sort of little things that kind of kept piquing my interest. Like uh, I was in a band and we got a grant to record an album and I learned about reverb and I thought that was like the most amazing thing and all the different kinds of reverbs and I went and Googled it and uh, I was asking the engineer lots of questions. I mean, but again, like I wasn't aware that that was, it was something that I was interested in. I think Flood, uh, Flood was just providing another opportunity for, for me to explore another side of working or wow. working in the music industry and I didn't know that I'd enjoy it or be any good at it it was just let's see and nearly 15 years later yeah I'm so you're still <laughs> in the music industry turns out I really liked it and it wasn't that bad at it <laughs> no no obviously we'll, we'll talk about yeah. that a little bit later so you you've did you come from Australia all the way here to work with Flood yes Okay, so you've flown halfway around the world, turned up at his door. Basically, and, yeah. And basically he's given you a, 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 an obvious opportunity. Yes. Did you have any expectation of what it's like to work in the studio? Well, being completely naive, I thought <clears throat> I'm going to be, you know, I'm flying to England to produce records. Okay. Like straight away. <laughs> I didn't know. Well, that's a great expectation. Well, yes, but I'd, no one had really explained to me the the sort of steps that you required, the kind of hierarchy. Yeah. The, the, the structure. Yeah, the yeah. structure, the, the, uh, the time that it takes and the roles that exist and that I was going to be starting at the bottom in order to learn and gain experience. I just thought it was, a, you know, someone sat at the room and was like, that needs more reverb. Or, you know, I don't know. I didn't know. Okay. Again, this is 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I think that's an expectation for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Though. I mean, maybe not now. Yeah. You know, the, the, the internet provides all of that information for you. True. 
you know. But obviously, even even fifteen years ago, yeah, you know, people did have an expectation, possibly, that the studio was just a place you turned up and things happened. Well, you, you yeah, like yeah. having a good idea was all you needed. Yeah. But it's so much more than having yeah. a good idea. Yeah, well, good idea is the the first first thing in the process. Yes. Isn't it? What's it like working with Flood? It was challenging. Uh, uh, that's not exclusive to Flood, though. No, that's not exclusive. No, that's, to that, you know, the studio environment can be challenging. Yeah, I, the first few years were very challenging. It also, and it had a lot to do with my naivety about, again, what the the dynamic of the studio and how to be, and I had no technological kind of understanding or previous knowledge. So literally, I, you I, came in cold. Knew nothing. I mean, even when I played in bands, the other guys in the band like plugged my keyboard into my amp because I didn't know the difference between input yeah. and output. I mean, I was that. I think some of the most successful musicians still operate it on that basis. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I do. I I've don't worked know. with plenty of them. <laughs> when I first started, there was definitely a particular ethos and expectation and standard of how to behave as an assistant in the studio and that was not expressed necessarily to me. I sort of had to pick it up. Um, so it was a struggle. However, throughout, as I sort of began to understand that and as we worked uh, together more and more, I mean, he's an incredible creative and a maverick yeah. in the studio and yeah. uh, he's – I mean, he taught me kind of loads of things. One of the things that I even say to bands is I remember we were recording Polly Harvey and there was a 19A19 mic, a Lomo mic, and he was sitting at the desk and she was sitting behind him and he just sort of turned the mic stand in the vicinity of her guitar and hit record. It wasn't, you know, he didn't yeah. spend like hours placing the mic. It yeah. was just, it's... On the fly, yeah, as it were. Yes. Yeah. And you know, so kind of always being in record and always capturing something and and also just in the way that he would record things. Um, I mean, I kind of learnt back to front. Like I learnt not, you know how there's all these rules about recording. I learnt the, yeah. the, without rules yeah, and yeah, then later yeah. on I sort of un understood like. You learnt the technicals. Yes. Yeah. Uh, like the, there was things that he would do like place a mic in a cupboard, you know, just, and it would sound amazing. I just, yeah, there were lots of. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have had the pleasure of working of with course, Flood yeah. many, many years ago on, on a PJ Harvey record, yeah. actually, and for the week that, that I was assisting him, it was the most enlightening time Yeah, in terms of, of production. So, you know, and, and obviously I know, he makes incredible records. But he did me so many favours even though I thought I was being constantly punished. But he like, he, he just, like he, he would, or, or he'd always be throwing me in the deep end without any explanation or any sort of brief. It just would be kind can of. You, can you give an example of something like that? Uh, I mean, I guess. You mean the deep end as in, I was okay, so, you're, going, you're going to record something now? or, or Yeah, I mean, it was more the, it was more, putting me in situations that I'd gain a lot of experience and necessary experience yeah. uh, without having had any previous experience and kind of bluffing my way through it until I finally got it, I guess. I mean, I remember 
one of the examples is after we'd done the poly record, which uh, White Chalk, which I think we'd spent a good six months on, but we were recording to tape. And obviously, and I was, it was myself, John Parrish and Flood. Yeah. Um, and while I was tape up, essentially, I always had the backup of Flood. And then Ed Harcourt was doing a record or producing a record and their engineer had pulled out. So Flood had recommended me. And I'm like, God, I've never properly engineered and recorded onto tape all by myself. And he right. was just like, just do it, you know. And, I, and, and because he seemed to have faith in me or at least yeah. projected faith to, uh, to Ed, then Ed seemed to trust me and then that sort of gave me confidence to be able to do that and we managed to do that. And it's still actually one of my favourite sounding records that I've ever done. There's there's a thing here at, at the Assault and Battery Studios, and and I discussed this with with both Alan and Flood, yeah, about the the ethos and the career path that people that start working here mm-hmm. have to go through. Yeah, for for me that's that's really important in terms of because the the old school studio doesn't exist anymore. No, you know people aren't doing that at other studios. Well, the old school studio, in my my understanding, is the way that Flood and Allen were kind of brought up in the industry. Yes. Like when they worked at Trident and there was like a whole team of assistants who were kind of vying for <coughs> particular, opti- particular yeah. opportunities and the kind of, the you know, was survival of the fittest essentially, yeah. which I, although it's not as cutthroat now uh, and – the people who do come through the doors, you know, they're sort of nurtured a bit more and we to help cultivate their careers. There is still an element of like, you know, you've got to, you've kind of got to pay your dues and you, there is an attitude that you need to have and a trust that you need to earn in order for you to kind of progress to the next level yeah. and instilling that those kind of, uh, I guess, work ethic and that yeah. work ethic and is something that I learnt when I was coming through as well. Yeah. And you're right, there isn't, uh, there isn't that kind of studio culture that no, exists that's right. as there, much anymore. That's right, there, there isn't, is there? And, and that's one of the things that f- f- for me is, is incredibly important here. Yeah. And I think people need to hear about it because without that ethos, our creative art, yeah. if you like, just gets washed away and, and you know, Colleges and universities provide a very particular role in, in the development of the next generation of producers and yeah. engineers and mixers. But it can't provide the type of experience that you would have working in a place like a salt and battery. No, there's there's a type of experience that I've that I've gained. And look, there's lots of different kinds of producers and um and and different kinds of career paths and yeah. this is just one um but they uh, having had this experience it's it's meant that i kind of have the tools to deal with kind of high pressure and high profile situations now yeah where i mean i remember being three years in thinking uh, having been assisting and doing a bit of engineering thinking, well, why aren't I producing records now? And I remember Flood saying, it's going to take you at least 10 years. And I was like, what? 10 years? <laughs> I didn't know this. I wanted to be the biggest producer in the world, like that. Uh, but he was right. It, it just, it kind of took the time that it took. And there were a lot of lessons and a lot of mistakes that I made along the way, but that was part of the experience. And 
you know, when I did start to get high profile jobs and 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 work and production work with major labels and it was still early on in my career, I really felt the pressure and the sense of responsibility in dealing with bigger budgets and uh and I I still then didn't have the kind of mechanisms to cope with that kind of pressure. And now as the years have gone on, I definitely, you know, kind of throw anything at me and I bounces off. It just bounces off. I call it the impenetrable force field. So just, you know, any sort of artist issues or, you know, yeah, just management record labels, anyone who's sort of got any, any issues, I feel like I can deal with those. And and do you think, Flood and Alan have taught you how to approach that? I think just through years of working with them, I've learned yeah. from uh, from following the way that they yeah. approach, approach dealing with people. Yes. Yeah. And just how, I mean, that and their kind of level of confidence and skill. Uh, I mean, the technical side is a part of it, but it's not at all the essential part of it. What do you think is the essential part? I think it's the psychology and the the sort of people management, and then right. uh, and being able to facilitate and and create situations that are conducive to creativity, and expanding that creativity so that that creativity transcends to something yeah. extremely special. It isn't just about recording something and making it sound good. It's about kind of elevating the performances and capturing something, uh, and that is almost an intangible thing you know knowing how to like twiddle some knobs and getting a good sound i love like the ta- you know how tactile that is and i love a, a, the sonics is definitely a massive part of it in cre- allowing whatever that energy or feeling is to come through the speakers so i don't know it's like a whole kind of series of interweaving parts and experience that through having worked with Alan and Flood and having them as my mentors, which I was very fortunate to. Sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, that it's kind of taught me, definitely taught me and influenced me heavily. How does Catherine create that atmosphere in the studio for your artists to work? Well, it's about sort of building trust and empowering the artists, I think, rather than me dictating how something is going to go. I'm reacting to... The kind, I guess the energy or the dynamic in the studio and also trying to make it enjoyable and fun. Yeah. Um, and, not, and the studio can be quite an intense and tense environment. Yes. So often trying to ease that and uh, that tension and making the artist feel as comfortable as possible. In, comfortable in the sense that... Uh, they feel comfortable enough to be themselves, whether they're going to be assholes or de- miserable or just whatever they need to express. So I try and get that quite quickly, I guess, and achieve that. And I usually do that in pre-production. I, I guess then you have to have a very good intuition Yes. about people. Well, I think I've learnt, and again, that's through... Flood and working with Flood and Allen, but learning to read people and read their kind of needs. As, as an assistant, you have to do that. You have to yeah, be, sure. you have yeah. to be thinking, yeah. sort of three steps ahead. Yeah. I just had this wonderful assistant uh, in America who I'd call his name, and he'd already be standing right next to me. Yeah. I thought I thought he was out of the room, but he 
kind of knew when I needed something or I'd say, would you mind? And he'd go, already done it. Before yeah. I'd even finished the sentence, he knew exactly what I, I needed. And we'd only been working together for a few days. So that was, uh, I was like, that was a godsend. Well, that's always helpful, isn't yes. it? Yes. That's always helpful. Yeah. But I was thinking he's going to be a, a good, um, good producer because he made me feel very comfortable. You worked with Flood all those years. Three years, yep. And then, amazingly, they said, okay, we'll go downstairs and work with Alan Mulder. I know. Well, I think Alan, he had thought perhaps that I hadn't had the, the I'd had a kind of erratic education in, from a technical point of view. So he, and he felt a responsibility. Uh, but I'd also, uh, coming into work for him, I'd also had a lot of experience engineering and working for other producers. So uh, I felt a, well equipped to kind of deal with someone of, of that calibre. Were you engineering by then? Or I, I were you think still just assisting stroke ass- engineering? Assisting like stroke engineering. I think I, I, do, I did like vocal and production and engineering on pop stuff. Okay. Um, I think that's what I was kind of doing at that point. Uh, so by the time I got to Al, I kind of walked in and I said, look, these are the things that I'm good at. Use me for those. But here is the stuff that I'm really lacking knowledge in, but you only need to tell me once. And he was great. He really kind of took the time to, uh, explain a lot of things to me. And, uh, if I ever made mistakes, he would just tell me once. And when you say a mistake, what do you mean? Just simple things like the patch bay that sometimes that was something that I wasn't, even though I'd been working at Assault and Battery 2 for a year, yeah. there was there were still things that I would get confused about uh, and he would, I'd sort of probably not patch something in right and he would, he would just get, talk you through it. Talk me through it, yeah. But then there were other, I guess we'd, we created kind of systems which allowed him to, to take the time because you know, when you're mixing, you obviously, there's not a lot of time. You might have a day and a day and a half or two yeah. days. You're lucky. So there isn't a lot of time to explain stuff to people who are there to kind of essentially support you. But he did take that time and I'm very appreciative. W- were you very inquisitive then? Were you always like? I was, I was initially, but obviously working with Alan, I wasn't, I mean, I, it was more just, I had a job to do. So here are the things. The, the tools that I needed to be the support for him. Uh, if, yeah, if there were things that I didn't know, he would just let me know. And Yeah, because the, the mixing assistant yeah. is quite different to the recording assistant. Yes. Recording, you're always moving around, yeah. you're checking stuff. Mixing, you're kind of on standby. Yes, exactly. I was more what did just- you end up doing? with? Uh, can you talk me maybe through, okay, so first of all, you probably just maybe sat at the back of the studio yeah. kind of just watching, but then eventually you moved forward. Yeah, so I think it wasn't very long until he want, I would start preparing mixes for him or, and also doing stems as well. Like he'd, okay. he'd, always stems, do, yeah. he'd always done his own stems. And I think one Friday night I said, why don't you go home early and I'll do the stems? Why don't you do that? And I think because our working relationship had kind of been cemented quite quickly in 
in that there was like it was quite fluid and we were we were becoming a good team. Yeah, sure. I think he trusted me to do that. Now I know it sounds like not a big deal, but for him it was because in yeah. in all his career he'd always done his own stems. We both loved systems and file management yes. and color coding and uh, spreadsheets and you know just kind of anything that could make it foolproof and idiot proof. Yeah. Um, you know, like checking recall sheets and double checking. And I mean, I, I really cared about what I was doing. Uh, so yeah, there was a, I guess there was a level of trust there. So after that, he, I would start preparing mixes. So for example, sessions would come in and I'd kind of arrange the Pro Tool sessions and, uh, add plugins that he would normally use or start balancing it to match a rough mix. You did that all off your own back? You were just like, okay. Well, it was more just I can do that, you know, yeah. let me do this or let me try this for you. you. And, yeah. then there, and then that was the system that kind of became apparent. And then, uh, and then a little while in, I think about six months or nine months in, he was starting to get uh, mixed work for perhaps lower budget projects. And so he would say, well, why don't, while I'm working on something else, why don't you do this? And I'll, I'll kind of oversee it. So essentially I was doing mixes and getting my homework marked. But what was so great about working with Alan was I'd obviously having worked with Flood and a lot of other producers, I'd never been part of the process of finishing off a record essentially. Yeah. So in my head, I was like, well, you can kind of do whatever and record whatever and someone else is going to fix it down the line. Yeah. But experiencing working for Alan and the mixing process, I started to understand and love finishing off a project or finishing yeah. off a, a, a track. And I think that helped me inadvertently to become a better producer because I knew how I, I wanted to sound later down the line. Yeah. So not, so I would record things how I wanted them to sound in the mix, not okay. thinking this we can process Oh, I'll it. leave it to so-and-so to sort out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And therefore, you know, you take that maybe a little bit more time or care or, or have a bit more thought about it. Well, exactly. And also it's, it's, it's also being considerate because I knew yes. of the kind of sometimes the quality of the recordings that we were getting and how frustrating it was because you're trying to get something out of it that just doesn't exist. Nowadays, people are recording anywhere mm-hmm. with anything. Yeah. Um, what, what do you do when, you're, when you've got a sound or a guitar sound or a drum sound that isn't very helpful? How, how do you approach? I embrace and try and disguise it, whereas Alan probably wouldn't. He would be quite fastidious and uh, he would work very hard to try and get it to where he would okay, want so you, it. You... Well, because also that, thing, that in itself, uh, and, and I think I feel like this is something that floods probably unbeknownst to him, kind of yeah. taught me that, I mean, things don't have to, have to be perfect. And, you know, the way something is recorded, so whether it's like, you know, record one, a drum is record, kit is recorded with a 57. Yeah. That's the thing that's kind of makes whatever the feeling of the track kind of unique. Okay. So rather than going, oh, I wish I had a kick and a snare. Yeah separate mic or something to create more punch you you find something else about the track that you know gives you that thing in replace in yeah. replacement okay. of, to create the to, to create the magic yes exactly yeah. um all right so so you're mixing with alan mm-hmm. and he's 
you started doing the the other projects. Yeah. Do you have a sound? Do you have a vibe? Do you have like a, an approach? <laughs> I like if I if I if I employ Catherine Marks to mix my record tomorrow, what am I going to get? Well, hopefully, just an enhancement of what you've already done. So, I I love the way Alan mixes because he doesn't try and reinvent the wheel. He kind of gives you back something that in the way that you always wanted to it to sound only better and you're not sure why. And I hope that I do that, but also I I hope that I kind of enhance the energy and the oh, yeah, emotion yeah. and the feeling through the through the mix. Well, you definitely do that. I mean, you know, your records with the Wombats and, and the Amazons, they just sound amazing. Thank you. The volume yeah. and the power is, is, in, is for me anyway. I mean, I was listening to them over the weekend. Yeah. I was thinking, wow, how'd you, how'd you get that? Where's that coming from? You know, because all engineers, when they're mixing, are seeking the nirvana yeah. and this utopian ideal. But we obviously all struggle with that. Yeah. It's more about feeling right. for me, not getting uh, – rather than thinking, oh, how's that bass sitting? Right. Or – uh, you know, is the EQ of the guitar right? I'm like, how do all the how do all the pieces feel together? Okay, and, and is that something you got from the both Flood and Alan, or is that something that you've kind of just thought, no, this is what this is your intuition there? Well, with I mean, Flood and Alan never sat down and said, well, this is my process. You know, it's, right. So whether it is something that I inadvertently picked up from them, I don't know. But if I I'm I am actually quite conscious of the fact that I I don't kind of start a mix by listening to a whole bunch of things in solo and and tweaking that particular sound. I mean eventually like I want to hear things in solo, but I like to kind of massage the whole mix together first with all the elements in there and, and just and, getting a what a balance. Or, well just or, to get like a sort of vibe or something, like something that kind of speaks to me. Um, and I'm sort of also very visual, and so in especially in producing and recording, I kind of like the the, the sonics of something to have an imagery to it. In in your mind. In my mind. Okay, yeah. so you're 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 creating a picture of the band. Yes. Or the record. Sorry. Yes, it's some sort of imagery attached to, um, or or something filmic or. Like one of the Man- the last Manchester Orchestra record I did, uh, I kept thinking about, you know, the TV series Twin Peaks, which yeah. can be quite bleak and dark, you know, or David Lynchy style yeah, kind sure. of yeah. uh, imagery. Um, and, and I would, I mean, whether it's apparent or not, it's definitely something that is a starting point for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's the, that kind of, I don't know, the, almost like a sound that you can like pl- put your hand into the speakers and pluck it out because it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it says something that, that evokes an image or a feeling. All those sort of things really excite me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense yeah. to me. It's very esoteric, but yeah. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, yeah. really. So with Al, I did that I think we did that for a couple of years um, and we were also training another 
someone else for him to kind of take over for me. But I was essentially working in like a little B room next to Flood's kind of main, uh, Alan's main uh, control room. Yeah. Uh, and eventually he was like, it's time for you to leave, which was quite devastating. <laughs> Mate, but also because I wasn't really doing anything for him anymore. I was just using the room and getting my own kind of mixed projects. Yeah. But I still loved, I loved working next door to him because also I loved referring to him and uh, almost I was doing, I was mixing stuff with him in mind, imagining if he was going to come in and mark my homework again. And that happened a few years after that as well, after I'd, le- I'd left, left that room and I moved to where we are now. And I, but I, there was a point where I, I think I just ran into him and I said, do you mind if I mix without you in mind anymore? And he's like, I've been waiting for you to say that for ages. Oh. <laughs> um, but that was kind of great because it, it took the shackles off and I started using plugins in different ways and, or, or processing things in just kind of trying out my own thing, not necessarily doing the things that I thought were correct but that felt correct. Do you mix entirely in the box? Uh, I mix in the box but I've got – I run through – uh, a summing mixer, analog what, summing mixer. What one have you got there? The Fat Busted. Fat Busted, yeah. Yeah, I like that one. An Obsidian compressor, oh. domestic audio Obsidian compressor. That's the same. Is that the same one as Alan? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that seems really popular. Yeah, it's popular in this building. I yeah. got it because of him. I like the blue light. <laughs> okay. Uh, if it was red, you wouldn't be. No, not as interested. Okay. Uh, and then through, I think the backrack. The VAC rack is, is... An EQ. Okay, and then you're going into the manly... Massive passive EQ. Yeah. And straight back in. So you're yeah. kind of analog front end. Yes. But primarily mixing in the box. Primarily mixing in the box. All my effects, like um, well, a lot of my effects, like delays and reverbs, I process outside the box and print back in. Okay, so do you use a lot of pedals? Yes. For reverbs? Yeah, just Delays. just interesting things that kind of add another that you can't get from a PCM seventy. Yeah, just that add in a different dimension. I I find it yeah, it's more kind of three dimensional. Okay. I, and I also I, I I love the kind of color and the sound of a of a the fat busted. I can really hear when something has been mixed in the box actually, but only because I'm sort of so attached to to kind of that's the sound of that that box. Yeah, uh, the the, the fat busted. How long do you spend on the mix? Are you done like in six hours? I could be done. Yeah, sometimes it could, I could be done in six hours and then I'll spend like another day tweaking stuff that no one else is going to notice. <laughs> but I usually get the – I kind of get the, the vibe of the mix within four to six hours. Yeah. And if it's not coming, then I have to park it. But it's, that's very rare. Do you use a lot of automation? Yeah. In pushing stuff? Yeah. Into the busted or – it, well, I also drive my the one nine two interface quite hard as well. I okay, quite are you like in the red? Sometimes, yeah. That's okay, right. I quite like. I like that. that. I like the sound of it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I'll sort of I'll balance everything, I guess, quite statically, and then I'll start to um start to do rides for you know kind of to enhance particular moments or yeah. Um, for things to kind of fall away and then come back again, that's that's what I'll do. Or I'll you know use different plugins for different moments in a song or 
and okay. so I'll automate those, yeah. When you start in a mix, have you got an idea of what it is you want it to be at the end? Does that go back to the picture thing? Like, do you have like an image of you sit well, down, you listen to the rough mix? If if it's something if it's something that I've produced, then I already know how I want it to sound. Sure, it's actually harder. Yeah, because you've been hearing the potential the whole way through, and then finally you've got to deliver that potential. So I tend to inch stuff kind of closer and closer to the finished product when it's my own productions. Um, but if it's someone else and I haven't been part of the process, I usually have a conversation with the artist or the producer yeah. uh, kind of about what they're looking for. Are they really happy with the rough mix? And if so, it's just enhancing what's already there. Um, and But how far, you know, I'll usually send a kind of work in progress and ask, you know, have I pushed this too far or, yeah. or can I, can we, you know, take it a bit further? And I'll kind of gauge it there. Um, but yes, I, it's sort of, I'll kind of do a lot of things to kind of get myself excited about it. And then yeah. I'll kind of be, I'll listen from top to bottom a few times to kind of see if that feeling still exists. And then I'll send it off knowing in my head, like all the kind of little detail stuff that I want to do. And then that's what happens after that. After they're like, yay, we love it. Which then I'm also really surprised about because I'm like, really? You don't have any comments? <laughs> I can see you've got two or three speakers here. Yeah. Do you listen elsewhere? Are you listening outside like on the car or on iPhone? I, li- you- I listen on my iPhone and iPhone and, and the headphones. Yeah, you just download it and yeah. check, check the mix out there. Yeah, make but sure. I can usually tell like thing, things that are sort of not great to poke out on iPhone speakers, which is really bad. I've got a pair of M audio speakers at home, which I'll sometimes check stuff on. They're, they're quite clear and unforgiving. Um, but I know, I mean, I've been working in this room now yeah. since 2012, 13. Seven, eight years. Uh, so I know this room, I know this room really well. It's so hilarious. Like this was only going to be temporary. I mean, it's a, essentially a little box, but I kind of love it. <laughs> I just, I if mean, it works, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When you're recording, mm-hmm. and say you're recording, you know, the Amazon, whoever. Yeah. Are you, are you, when you're doing your drums in a bass seat, are you tempo ma- mapping stuff? Are you, are you going out of your way to to quantize stuff, or are you just very much like, it's a band, let them play? Um, what's what, what's your feelings about that? Because a lot it's of people, so, it's so dependent on the project. Yeah, I, I mean, I will go for performance over precision. Yeah, every day, every uh, time, mostly. But also sometimes, just it also depends on the way that it's being recorded. Like I've just done a project where uh, we're doing it over a long period of time, and it's been we were very decisive at the start that the drum sounds were kind of really important to the identity of the songs, whether they were going to be electronic or live drums. So we've spent a lot of time on that. And in order for, um, so it's less about live, the the drums were tracked with a live performance, but essentially we kind of want to have like a really solid foundation. And a lot of things are about rhythms and counter rhythms. So with that, we've been putting things to the grid, but it isn't just like we whack beak detective over. We kind of know what the the journey should be, and sometimes we let things slow, speed up or slow down. Yeah, sure. um, so it's not 
kind of quantize within an inch of its life. Okay. But then, um, but then if you, know, I guess with the Amazons, we recorded to a click, but I didn't quantize the drums. We, um, we oh, on the first record we didn't. So it was yeah, it was recorded, but everyone was playing together. So there was the movement and the push and pull existed with um, everything. So. So it's basically just sometimes you do, yeah. sometimes you won't, yeah. but you'll talk with the band. Yeah. But and you'll always take a performance over quantizing the head but out. But there is also a way to, to, to put things to the grid and it be sensitive and not feel like it has been. Um, and that's a skill in itself. Sure, yeah. I had great engineers who know how to do that better than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, there's, there's some very good. People like that. Yeah. Things to avoid in the process of making records or mixing records. Are there some things that maybe people should, that you try to avoid or steer away from? I don't know. That's a good question. I try and avoid wasting time in the studio. What would be classed as wasting time? Sitting around and chatting about nothing. Procrastinating. Sometimes discussions are really important, but, you know, when... I like to have things sort of got happening all the time yeah. Um, and to be making the most of the studio while we're there. During the recording? During the recording, yeah. yeah. And the mixing? The mixing, you, I'm sort of by myself. You're kind of so, by yourself yeah. and then you send it off and yeah. so you kind of just work. Yeah. Excellent. I think that's good advice, actually. Yeah. yeah. Too many people waste time. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's – it's totally understandable when you, you know, you might run out of steam and you just need a little brain break. But I find like that if you keep the momentum going, things, you know, sort of great things come out of that. And even pure exhaustion, just uh, it's it's a different kind of creativity. So you drive your band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Okay, awesome. Uh, thank you very much, Catherine Marks. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all our other episodes. And just before you go, let me point you to the sound on sound forward slash podcasts website page where you can explore what's playing on our other channels. This has been a mixed bus production by me, Kevin Paul for sound on sound. <laughs>